0: Welcome to the Pod with me, James DeliPod. And before I announce this week's incredibly excited guest, I just wanted to remind you that um, freedom isn't free, and neither in an ideal world of my podcast. So please, will you remember, if you can, to support me on my Patreon, and then I will do even more of this stuff, and I will love you even more, and we'll all be happy. Free me from the evils of the mainstream media and enable me to do my thing for you. Um, this is going to be a great podcast, I know. Uh, my guest is Dr. James Todara. You,
1: you look about 12, James, may I say. <laughs> how, old, I, how old are you? I'm actually in my mid-30s. But if I came on with no facial hair, I, I would look even younger. But
0: uh... Yeah, you're, you're young anyway. Um, James, uh, I'm really looking forward to this because I know we have a shared interest in hydroxychloroquine which is a kind of bit of a weird obsession to have, isn't it? But it's also, I mean, in my view, and I was trying to explain this to a colleague of mine, hydroxychloroquine is like the key to all mythologies. It's it's so important in this coronavirus pandemic. Would you agree?
1: I think it has tremendous potential. I think that there's a lot of evidence out there for its efficacy if it's used very early in outpatient care. I think that uh, a lot of the big organizations, institutions have been studying it wrong and are coming out with either fake data entirely, which we'll get into, or, you know, just wrong wrong use cases for it.
0: Yeah. Now, before we go on, I ought to establish you are a medical doctor, aren't you?
1: That's correct. I graduated from Columbia University uh, in New York, which is where I got my medical degree.
0: And I know that you've got, you're involved in blockchain and you're using your kind of medical qualifications to, to to create a business. Do you also, are you also a doctor as well? You know, do you treat patients still or not?
1: So I, I wear two hats. Uh, so one, yeah. So I, I went through residency uh, in ophthalmology. i become an ophthalmologist. Uh, that's actually when I took a step away, though, from practicing clinical medicine simultaneously with that uh, over the last six, seven years. I've been doing a lot of investments into blockchain, uh, financial technology. And so that became so substantial that uh, really became my focus. All the meanwhile, staying abreast of what was going on in the medical world, which is why COVID-19, novel coronavirus caught my attention back in January.
0: Mm. Are you, like me, a bit of a COVID skeptic, if you like? You think that this is kind of a bit of a, well, like a massive overreaction to what is essentially probably not worse than seasonal flu?
1: So now more yes than before, but uh, let me clarify. So when, uh, when, this, when, when I first saw this virus spreading in Wuhan, this is back in January, you know, there's yeah. really three questions that came to my mind. How infectious yeah. is this virus? You know, how fatal is it? And what can be used to treat it? Is there a treatment or prophylactic for it? To me at the time, based on the way it was spreading, it was was very infectious. I was like, okay, so this is probably going to come to Europe and the US and have a a huge impact on either the economy, the health, or maybe both. Number two was, is there a treatment prophylactic for it? That's when, along with a colleague, we proposed, we wrote the first paper uh, proposing hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine as a a potential treatment for coronavirus. And then the next question was, how fatal is this really? And I tweeted out about three months ago now, uh, back in March that we probably won't know exactly for a couple more months how, what the real infection fatality rate of this is. At the time it was reported between somewhere 3% to 10%, which is terrible for a highly infectious virus. But if it turns out to be lower, then that's different. And and so I think what we've seen, and that's why uh, a few colleagues and myself put out a second report in April saying, okay, I think we have a better idea of the infection fatality rate based on serology testing it's far lower than what we thought. It's closer to 0.2%. So, you know, maybe a, a, a little bit worse than a bad flu season uh, going forward. And, um, and so today, I think we can even see that more clearly is that it actually does have a much lower infection fatality rate. The CDC came out with their own uh, estimations of it and it landed around 0.24%. It took them a month later than, than our research but they still came out with that saying about the same thing. So I think in a lot of ways it's, it's overblown. Can these viruses always mutate one way or another, become worse, become uh, you know less uh, lethal? Yes, and I think it's going in the direction of actually becoming less lethal, because that's the way viruses like to spread. They spread better by not killing you, but by you being out there spreading it to other people. And I think that's what we've seen during this. Could it mutate to something uh, more fatal? Possibly, but it's kind of not the, the natural path of, of evolution of viruses. Mm. So we're pretty much
0: on the same page. I'm interested, I hadn't realized that you published the first (laughs) paper on hydroxychloroquine as a potential. I mean, I'm familiar with a, I wrote about this for for Breitbart and what I found was that there was a 2005 paper uh, on, you must have read this, on how hydroxychloroquine was being used as a treatment for SARS, which is basically coronavirus mark one, isn't it?
1: Yep, yep. Yeah.
0: So was that what inspired you or was it the anecdotal reports coming out of China where they, I think they'd been using it there as well?
1: It was actually a combination of all those. So uh, first of all, as a physician, I was very familiar with hydroxychloroquine. It's something one of the main side effects is visually. So uh, but that's after five years of using the medication, not after a small or treatment course. But um, so I started seeing a combination of all. So there's a 2005 study looking at its efficacy in SARS-1. There was anecdotal reports coming out from China and South Korea, where it's being used in their treatment guidelines. Uh, there was in vitro evidence of its efficacy in, in primate cells. And um, and then, you know, all this together, what really was surprising to me is I had not heard a single thing about it mentioned in the mainstream media or by you know, a lot of researchers. It was all remdesivir uh, or, you know, some of these other, uh, you know, on, on patent medications. And so that was very surprising to me. And, and the, my colleague, uh, Greg, as well, who co-authored the paper with me, he had been doing research on the antiviral effects of chloroquine for about a decade. So he was very familiar with the medications. Well, we teamed together, put out that report. Elon Musk tweeted it out, uh, I think a day or two later. And then about uh, well, three or four days later, uh, the president's talking about it in that in press mm-hmm.
0: So, it's all your fault, basically.
1: it was this controversy it's, is apparently all my fault. ah it, uh, it all came from our report, which was published in a Google doc that was taken down by Google and is still down by Google.
0: and so was your was your report published in any of the medical journals, or was it a kind of independent thing?
1: It was totally independent. So um I, I'm very familiar with the medical process of publishing, and it's slow, particularly that early in the pandemic. Yeah. Later on, it became the uh, you know, the standard to publish a preprint and kind of let the public dissect the, the manuscript and the research, as opposed to waiting for a peer review process, which we've seen fail in the hugest ways just this past week or two. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll come <laughs> to that. We'll get into that. <laughs> yes. um, but so we did not want to wait a month or two for a journal to review yeah. this and then potentially even reject it. Then you submit it to a new journal and it's, it's a long process. And so what we felt, and this was in the middle of a pandemic. You know people are becoming sick we didn't know how how bad this pandemic could be and so we actually just published it as literally a google document and um and that google document that link went went viral uh had millions and millions of views and then uh, a day or two later google took it down they never told me why they took it down Um, and still down today which is really surprising considering that you know this was really the first uh widely disseminated paper that triggered uh, a lot of research all around the world from very smart, smart clinicians and stuff, and very, uh, you know, and, and clinical trials by the World Health Organization. And you still can't really, you can't really read that that original document. It's up in other places now, but in its original form, it, it was it's still deleted by Google.
0: I'm I'm fascinated to hear that your friend Greg, yeah. your colleague, the guy, uh, he's been researching the antiviral properties of. Hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine for, for 10 years. So what what's what's he discovered? I mean, is it for example? Is it because it's a zinc ionophore that it works or or what?
1: That seems to be the predominant um, thought uh, from his research I would love to go into that more But uh, I have from him because his, his research in, into it is, into another condition is still very active and so it's um, right. You know, it, it's kind of all private at this point point. Um, But based on that research, looking at it in treatment of a different virus is, you know, how we saw a lot of similarities to how it could be effective for this virus as well. Yeah.
0: But so can you just uh, explain to kind of us non-medics what a zinc ionophore is and why this might be the reason it works?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, to be simply stated, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine can almost open up a a channel and carry zinc through into the cell. Okay. Um, yes. And by doing so, zinc can inhibit the replication of this virus within the cell. So the way the viruses work is they, they attach to a cell, then they enter, and they use that cell's machinery to make you know, millions of replications of itself. And then the cell bursts open or releases those. If you can stop the replication of that virus within the cell, uh, which zinc can do, then you can prevent it from spreading and and you know essentially stopping the virus. That's why we we you know we want to look at it in very early use before the virus is already once it's already spread throughout your entire body. You know you already have your your cytokine storm maybe in effect and your inflammatory response and you're already going downhill. But if you can stop the replication in those very early and just those you know handful of cells that are maybe contaminated with the virus, um, you know I think it has it has a good amount of potential for that.
0: So what do you understand about, about hydroxychloroquine, that, that if used in conjunction with zinc in the early, well, it can, can it act as a prophylactic, number one?
1: So that's still actively being researched. So we proposed that as well in our original paper uh, back in March. And there was a study that just came out uh, from Minnesota that was looking at it as uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, this was just hydroxychloroquine. Uh, no zinc. It was a uh, kind of an online, considered a randomized controlled trial, but was conducted online where they, they sent the medication to, to patients who uh, were, thought they were exposed to the virus and to see if it worked. Based on that study, it, it showed that it didn't work, but there's some concerns in, because there's such a long period of where you are asymptomatic with this virus that um, these, a number of these people could have already been infected and really needed more of a treatment course of hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and zinc, as opposed to just a very short, few-day course of hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic. Um, but based on that study, it, it says no, but uh, you know, that's, I wouldn't say that's the strongest data, and there's a, a good amount of active research going on right now. So I would say we don't know the answer for sure to that, um, it does seem, though, that zinc uh, amplifies the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine based on uh, some of the evidence that's out there. You know, medicine is all about working with the evidence you have. You know, it's, it's, it's very rarely black and white. And so all everything I'm saying is just based on what we know today. Could this change in a week or two with another study, one way or another? Of course. But based on what's available, it does seem like zinc can help. And, you know, originally I was a little bit skeptical of zinc, honestly, <laughs> um, because uh, I thought maybe you had enough zinc in your body already where hydroxychloroquine can use your your natural levels of zinc to to still perform the same effect. But potentially zinc, by getting, you know, boosting your levels of zinc a little bit by, you know, supplements, that could, uh, maybe that's necessary. And maybe a number of people are actually low in zinc, and and that could harm as well.
0: Yes. So, okay, so it's possibly useful as a prophylactic, but you think it's more interesting as a, if you get it in the early stages of coronavirus that it can disrupt the cytokine storm maybe?
1: So I think that it's actually very interesting, not just in early treatment, but as a prophylactic. I think it's interesting in both. If you have a, a medication prophylactic, I mean, we stop the virus in its tracks and it's game over. You don't even really need a vaccine potentially. Um, yeah. I think that the best shot of it working is either as a prophylactic or in very early treatment. So this is within just a few days of of uh, you know, becoming infected with the virus. Uh, this isn't something where you are hospitalized and they're deciding to put you on a ventilator or not and they give you hydroxychloroquine. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm skeptical and I've yet to see uh, you know, evidence that it works that late. There's anecdotal evidence, but based on the studies available, I would say it most likely does not work um, in those late stages of disease, which is interesting because yeah. that's what most people are studying, but.
0: Yes, that's a good point. So since you published that, that Google paper that now Google's now censored, um, have you seen lots of other studies and have you heard lots of anecdotal evidence which supports your thesis?
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, basically once we put out this paper, we became, um, I don't want to say we word famous, but we became very, uh, you know, almost a hub of information on hydroxychloroquine studies. So I have... Uh, I get hundreds of messages a day from people that are pointing out research or physicians that are, are uh, treating patients themselves, who either call me and give me their updates on, on how the treatment with these medications are going, and these are, are physicians who don't make it into academic journals who aren't publishing data, but just, you know, real-world treating patients. Um, so yes, and, and I actually created another Google Doc um, about two 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 and a half months ago that uh, basically compiled all the evidence, all the studies. Ah, uh, for and against hydroxychloroquine, uh, which was very popular. I converted that Google document into a website, which I call MedicineUncensored dot com, and that is where you can go find all the recent studies on hydroxychloroquine, again for or against, as well as breaking news related to COVID nineteen, and censored content.
0: Excellent. And what are you what are you hearing? I mean. You're a doctor, so you must have you must have loads of medics in your circle of acquaintance and beyond. Even I, as as a as a, a non-medical journalist, have spoken to a number of doctors who say this is a no-brainer that that um I've got a protocol. It involves hydroxychloroquine, zinc, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin D. I think maybe, and they say it works for my patients. Um, are you hearing this? And are you hearing a sort of is there a certain frustration that 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 there seems to be some kind of? Well, I don't know how to. I don't, I don't want to sound like a, a conspiracy theorist, but there seems to be an industry which wants to squash hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment.
1: So you know, while the you know when when COVID nineteen was really the the focus of the entire nation, now I think its its attention has been diverted quite a bit, and and I think we're in the summer months and. And, you know, this pandemic isn't turning out maybe as as dangerous as people had thought. But back in uh, March, April and May, when governors were prohibiting physicians from getting these prescriptions fulfilled at pharmacies, that was terrible. I mean, here you have physicians where they went through seven, eight years of medical training and know these patients well, know the risk factors, know the risk factors of this medication, which has been around for 65 years and prescribed millions of times. We're not being allowed based on a governor, a policymaker who thought that this medication was bad. That was, uh, there are many physicians very frustrated with it. You, of course, have your other group of physicians who, um, well, usually they're ones not necessarily treating patients, but the ones that just see what the, the mainstream media is putting out there. And as you said, there was a very orchestrated attack on hydroxychloroquine, really from within a week after I put out the, after my my co-author and I put out that first paper. You know, Huffington Post, Washington Post, um, Politico, they all put out articles attacking it, mentioning both myself and my co-author. And really ever since then, there seems like there's been this attack from uh, the World Health Organization, Dr. Fauci, and the media on hydroxychloroquine, and that kind of all culminated, I think. Uh, with the Lancet study, which we'll get into in a bit. Yes, we will. We're, we're warming up to the, to the main, <laughs> main event. Yeah, I'm just all, I'm having every I mean, now and then.
0: I know. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. it, it it's, it's really it's building. It's building. It's like it's like it's like going to going to um, see a, a DJ and he's working up the crowd yeah. and he's he's soon going to play the, the the floor filler. That's right. <laughs> so, have you have you had a lot of grief yourself? From I mean, have you become a kind of target for hatred and things like that?
1: So, I, it's, it's very interesting, since this was a grassroots effort, there's been a tremendous amount of grassroots support. Um, you know, I, I've had my Twitter account grow by about uh, maybe 25 to 30,000 followers in the past uh, couple of months. And there, there are very smart people on there that are in direct communication with me, usually through direct messaging, which I encourage. Uh, that's why I leave my direct messages open. I love hearing from all these very smart, independent researchers around the world, um, and they've been critical to putting all the information together for a lot of uh, of my discoveries. They, you know, I, well, I put the information together, but they all bring it to me. So I, I can't I can't say that there's been a lot of targeted attacks on you know Twitter on social media. It's all really just been from mainstream media articles. It's just those those <laughs> professional organizations that are attacking uh, and smearing, basically, my re- or attempting to smear my reputation. Like It's, it's very interesting. So here I, here so I had received a medical degree from Columbia University. I'm a physician. Almost not a single one of those mainstream articles will just call me a physician or say, Dr. James Todaro. The way they phrase it is, uh, you know, James Todaro, a, a cryptocurrency investor who tweets about having a medical degree or claims he has... A- he uh, it claims he's a doctor, like something you know, like just a little ways to be like to, to discredit you, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know how
0: it is. I totally know how it is. I'm I'm astonished that I used to think that there were there were elements in the mainstream media which were not bought and paid for, but it seems now the entirety of the mainstream media, including conservative mainstream media, is part of the part of the. I, I hate to use the word conspiracy, but. promoting the agenda of people who don't want hydroxychloroquine to be a thing can I can I just rewind a second sure you 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 trained as a doctor in America how much freedom do American doctors have to decide what what is suitable for their patients and what not because I'll put this in context I there's a doctor on my patreon group who said if I'd known what I know now about our National Health Service, I would never have become a doctor because I have these kind of functionaries, this system telling me what to do, often against what I consider the best interests of my patients, that they are they're bullies, technocrats who actually are just following orders from on high. I don't get any freedom. Is, is that true in America as well?
1: It's becoming worse. So um, I'm an ophthalmologist, and one of the reasons I actually specifically went into ophthalmology, did my training in eye surgery, is because it's one of the few medical specialties, surgical subspecialties, where you actually do still have a lot of freedom. Oftentimes, you have your own, you can own your own practice and really control how you treat your patients. My colleagues on the other side of the aisle, though, who are just becoming more and more integrated into corporate hospital systems what you're saying describes their situation where it's basically on high from how many patients you can see in a day, how many you're supposed to see in a day, what uh, you know what the the treatment should be, the risks you can take and and how you care for your patients and and how you should, uh, which is very sad but that that is uh, I'd say similar to to your system over there in, in Europe.
0: And is it dependent on what state you live in? I mean presumably if you live in a uh, a blue state um I always get confused with the red and blue. Blue is blue
1: Democrat, red Republican.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I imagine it was mainly the blue state governors who were banning hydroxychloroquine. Am I right?
1: That's correct. Yeah. I'll of the narrative.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, Kel surprise because what they didn't want people taking the Trump dr- drug, even if it worked.
1: Uh, of course, of course. Well, that's, it'll it'll that's kill, kill awful. you. Come on, come on, James. It'll you know it'll it'll kill you. Is what we heard, right?
0: I, I read that in The Lancet, I think, and The Lancet is the world's second most important medical journal, so it must be true, but we're still, we're not going to get there yet. So, um, I mean, that must be awful. If you're, say, a family doctor and you've got this, you're, you know your patients and, and they love you and they respect your clinical judgment, and you've got an elderly patient with maybe um, various, you know, in, in a high risk category, and you think, I'm going to save my my family, friends, my patients, ass by giving him hydroxychloroquine and and zinc and and whatever. Um, And suddenly you've got this governor, probably with no medical experience, who's read something in HuffPost and suddenly says you can't give it to you. I mean, isn't that, aren't lives potentially being jeopardized by this refusal to allow this drug to be used?
1: Of course. Of course. It's incredibly frustrating. There are a, a few physicians within the U.S. who were able to skirt those, uh, those rules. For instance, in New York, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Zelenko, but he's a family practitioner yes. in New York, right, who created what he calls the Zolanko Protocol, which is a combination of hydroxychloroquine, uh, azithromycin, and zinc in early treatment of, of COVID-19 patients. And he does it outpatient. I think he starts the medication regimen on people even before the positive tests come back. Because, again, it's so critical to start that medication early. And he's, I think, found pharmacies that were willing to uh, prescribe this or to, to give this medication to patients. And I think he's done that even outside of New York. Don't, don't quote me on that. But I think because of all the uh, you know, interstate telemedicine. So in the states before this pandemic, if you were a physician in one state, you, you really couldn't care for patients in another state, even through telemedicine those uh, borders broke down when it became clear that, you know, we needed physicians to be able to treat patients all over the country to try to diversify the, uh, you know, the, to meet supply versus demand, which I've been saying for years, but finally it came to that. And so I think he's been able to treat patients even outside of New York with this and find pharmacies who either will overnight you the medication um, or, or, you know, he knows the right pharmacies that will actually give it to you. So there are a few physicians that are, that are going above and beyond to try to care for their, their patients, but it makes you know, these governors are making it very challenging to do so.
0: So, so we've got the situation, have we, where, whereby there are certain states, which are, let's say, lax on the prescription, where pharmacies are lax on the prescription of hydroxychloroquine, and you've got to have access to those or your stuff, because you can't get uh, pharmacists in your own state to provide it.
1: That's correct. And it was actually really uh, sad. So this was, again, more in March and April, when uh, this was a but I had a ton of direct messages from firefighters, uh, medics who were contacting me saying, hey, I think I've been exposed. You know, my doctor either won't prescribe hydroxychloroquine because of what the governor said, or I can't get the prescription filled at a pharmacy. You know, can you do it? Uh, you know, I'm in Michigan. Uh, I'm an ophthalmologist. But uh, and so I try to connect them with you know, physicians who, who maybe could. But it uh, it was really sad.
0: Yes. What's that movie about? I, I I keep forgetting its name. The movie about the AIDS drugs, um, where they're trying to
1: trying the to get they have to go down to Mexico. Matthew McConaughey, da- Dallas Buyers yeah, Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one.
0: Yes, yeah. Dallas Buyers Club. It's a bit like that, isn't it? You've got this kind of monolithic system which won't get people, won't allow people to to choose what drugs they have, even though they know that they're effective.
1: Yeah. So there's a you know you're not the first one to raise these uh, the, the parallels between. Uh, that HIV pandemic and then and then this one
0: Yeah, yeah, you yeah, you seem a very a very level-headed guy James. You don't sound to me like a kind of Conspiracy theorist or kind of tin foil hat wearer. You seem to be <coughs> you know, you're prepared to consider both sides of the argument.
1: I'd I like to think so. I mean, I uh, you know, you know, I, I, I majored in chemistry I, I went to medical school and I like to just look at the evidence that's available and based off that, you know, whether something is called a conspiracy theory or not, that that means almost nothing to me. It's just based on the evidence. And it's amazing yeah. how quickly something goes from a conspiracy to a retraction, as in the case of the Lancet study. But um, yeah. and there's but like that's that's my thing. I just want to look at the evidence that's available.
0: I think we can wait no longer, James. I think we have to go on to. The Lancet study. Um, tell me, tell me about the, tell me about Lancet Gate, as it's become known.
1: Yeah, hashtag Lancet Gate. So the Lancet study, when it first came out, uh, May twenty second, it was really a. So it was a study in ninety six thousand patients, supposedly an observational study where it supposedly they're collecting real time data and analyzing these patients who received hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine plus or minus azithromycin. Uh, versus a control group in in treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized patients. The study came out showing that you had about twice the risk of dying from COVID-19 if you received hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. These results were immediately broadcasted through the mainstream media. Uh, You had CNN, you had um, MSNBC, everyone saying, okay, we were right. This medication kills you. Uh, The president probably almost died from taking this medication prophylactically, uh, earlier. And, um, and that was it. Then you had Dr. Fauci saying similar, basically like, okay, now we can say that hydroxychloroquine is a lost cause based on the Lancet study. And then just over a weekend. So the study came out on a Friday by Monday, the world health organization had supposedly done their due diligence on this study and halted. Clinical trials worldwide, and I think about 17 different countries. There were stu- these are clinical trials, controlled clinical trials. They didn't receive any data saying that this medication was harmful from those trials. But based on the Lancet data, this world-renowned journal by Harvard, you know, can study by Harvard researchers, we're going to halt all these trials. The results of the study didn't make sense to the, as you I guess call me more level-minded people, the objective uh, researchers out there. Because, you know, does hydroxychloroquine work late in hospitalized patients? Again, like I said earlier, uh, probably not. Does it increase your risk of dying? Does it double your, your risk of dying? Highly unlikely. So that was very suspicious to uh, Dr. Raoul, who's conducting a lot of research and, and treating patients uh, with hydroxychloroquine in France, as well as Dr. Zelenko and, and independent researchers. And, you know, I think they've been called uh, amateur sleuths on Twitter. Uh, this did not make sense. And so, um, a lot of us began a deeper dive into the data. And uh, that's when things started to not add up. You had, for, so the way they, they intentionally obscured the data, instead of telling how many uh, hospitals were included in each country and they where they're getting this data from, they just actually put it in the broadest category possible, which was um, how many uh, hospitals or patients are coming from a certain continent. OK, so the, the broadest classification they could, because that's the easiest way to to hide the data. Australia is both a country and, and a continent, and so it's easy to cross reference the data that they had in Australia versus how many patients were actually hospitalized at that time. And, it, and the numbers didn't add up. They were reporting more hospitalized patients than they, or more deaths from COVID-19 than there even were in Australia. And that was like one of the first pieces of the puzzle. And they quickly corrected that and said, oh, you know, we just accidentally designated a hospital that was in Australia and it should have been in in Asia. Our mistake, you know, we fixed that, no problem. Lancet supported them and said we did not change the conclusion at all. Study's still good. You know, results still on. But there's other data that didn't make sense either. You know, when I I took a dive into it as well, it was, um, you know, North America. They were reporting that they essentially you know, had patient encounters for almost every single patient in, in the U.S. who had COVID-19. And to be able to do that is, is almost impossible. And that's that's a database that doesn't exist to be able to capture that many patients in all these individual hospital systems, all with different electronic medical records. And then also their data from Africa didn't make a whole lot of sense either. They were uh, supposedly reporting that there was, you know, uh, advanced electronic medical record systems at these hospitals in Africa with, uh, you know, cardiac monitoring, uh, advanced continuous cardiac monitoring to catch these, uh, these arrhythmias. And so it was just, uh, you know, all this, you know, each of these inconsistencies just didn't make sense to us. Um, and, and, and what they hid behind, so, everyone, so a number of people were coming out uh, saying, okay, release the data. You know, there's enough red flags here that we want to see the data and, and audit ourselves or at the bare minimum having an independent agency audit it. And The Lancet and the authors came back with, well, we have data exchange agreements with hospitals, we can't release that data, and it's really unnecessary. We fix the one problem, which is the data, the rest of it is good. To me, this was, um, there were enough red flags, right? I actually thought the study was just fake at this point. <laughs> at first I thought it was probably a, a lot of fake data or some manipulation of the data, but now I was just like, I think it's just fake. <laughs> and so I was like, let me look at this corporation that is supposed to be the black box analyzing and then collecting all this data, Surgisphere. Mm. And that's when the story got really weird. <laughs> so you know, I, so based on my experiences, I'm both a physician, I, I've uh, you know, interacted with a number of different medical debas- uh, databases. I'm also a, a tech investor, so I'm very familiar looking at, at startup tech companies. Surgisphere looks like a startup tech company. Their website doesn't have any, any real history of research, it's all use cases, and this looks like a tech startup. So I was, it doesn't look like a database that's supposedly managing, uh, or has patient encounter, you know, 240 million patient encounters from 1,200 hospitals. Um, so I was like, who is this team behind this that's using this software, creating this software for artificial learning, and machine, machine learning, artificial intelligence? And there really wasn't much of a team, actually. <laughs> There's no team on the website. It's all linked to, to one guy, this this Dr. Sapan Desai, based in Chicago. If you go to LinkedIn, there was five employees. And their LinkedIn looked like it was attempting to be active. It has been around for a number of time. Four of the employees had just joined the company two to three months ago. That was the rest of it. Before then, it looked like it was just the founder. They didn't have any real medical experience. Uh, you had the, There were two businessmen. And then there were two kind of freelance science uh, writers, although one of them was science fiction. So I guess if you want to call that science, then sure. Um, and then if you look into their subsidiary companies, uh, Quartz Clinical, which is, was on their main page of the website, too. That's like the subsidiary company, I think, that's analyzing or doing all this very sophisticated analysis of this data. There's a promotional video from, I think, just last year that has, you know, it's one of those videos where you're at a, uh, a trade booth and it's kind of professionally shot and you're in front of your booth and you have the founder talking about this exciting software they have. And then you have the director of this, you know, young woman who's the director of sales comes on the screen and it's saying, you know, what we're doing here at Surgisphere blah, blah, And it says Surgisphere director of sales, you know, turns out she's actually an adult model. Um, And just a, and a a, a more, a little more erotic than that. But, um, and so it, it just, you know, and then if you look at the, the digital footprint of this company, Surgesphere, which is why I, I went to the Internet Archive and said, okay, well, what, is this, what was this company doing, say, two months ago or six months ago? You know, it's been around since 2007. And it was actually weird. It's not in the Internet Archives. It actually says this URL has been excluded from the archives, which is unusual. One thing is to just not have a website in their database. It's another thing for it to actually have been intentionally excluded. Um, which is, which is, is strange. And so I did a little bit of, like, you know, just researching what, what does this you know, phrase mean? When does this happen? It's usually when either the company inserts specific text codes into their website to help prevent the, uh, the Internet archives from kind of using their automated crawlers to find uh, this website and take a historical snapshot of it or the company requests that data be removed from the way from the internet archi- archives. So one way or another, this, this company or someone was trying to hide, uh, what this, this company was specific was saying, let's say two months or four months or six months ago. Um, and then even beyond that though, uh, you know, it, it didn't add up. So you have this Dr. Safin Desai who's, who publishes frequently. He has, if you look on PubMed, he's published about uh, you know, close to 40 publications over the last five years. Here he has this massive database, and he's never used it. Besides one study that he published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at cardiovascular drugs and COVID-19 on, on May 1st. That was the first time this massive database is used. This database should be coveted by researchers all around the world. Like this is, the, this is, this is a huge breakthrough, but it wasn't used by anyone, not even himself. Which is crazy, mm. um, and uh, you know, there's you know, and then the yeah, that's probably all the, the main highlights on Surgosphere that, that I discovered. And so what I did is I collected all those, put them in a, a paper, and published it on my website, medicineuncensored.com. So I published that May 29th, which is before any of the uh, kind of mainstream journals or magazines put out their own investigations into Surgisphere. Um, and it circulated on Twitter. It got a lot of attention on Twitter. And then, um, you know, the following week, you had the the Guardian's deeper dive into Surgisphere and and uh, and I put a lot of pressure on the Lancet to retract uh, this article, and which they did, uh, um, which was good. They didn't really do much of an apology or uh, recognition for, I guess, all the independent researchers out there who caught this glaringly fake study. That, remember, got past the World Health Organization, a 200-year-old prestigious journal, The Lancet, involved Harvard researchers, and, and um, yeah, it's incredible.
0: So, you must have some, well, okay, first of all, suppose <laughs> we'll you we'll are take in there. Richard, yeah. yeah, suppose you are the editor of The Lancet. Mm-hmm. Editor in chief of the Lancet, Richard Richard, Richard Horton, Horton yep. who I think has been in that job for twenty five years. Yes, and you get this, you get this study coming from this company, Surgisphere, with with this apparently blockbuster information, and based on a sample of, I mean, an extraordinarily large sample, ninety six thousand patients is a hell of a lot. Yeah. Do, do you think? I mean, okay. Suppose you'd written such a paper. Do you reckon you'd have got it passed into the Lancet just like that? I mean, how does it work? Oh,
1: absolutely not. Absolutely not. Especially because I, I wrote a paper on hydroxychloroquine uh, three months ago. But even without that, yeah. n- no way. No way on earth. Um, so, yeah. Well,
0: so so just I, I, I need you to explain to me... Um, Presumably there ought to be a vetting process ought there? when when stuff get to get into the Lancet I mean, am I right in thinking apart from the New England Journal of Medicine? It's the most the most influential Revered medical publication there is I mean to get there is a big deal, right?
1: Of course, of course the New England Journal of Medicine made the same mistake by the way, but yeah, yeah It's 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 very difficult. So <laughs> there's a very rigorous peer review process supposedly rigorous peer review process that goes into analyzing the, the data, the data, making sure um, you know, the conclusions make sense and, and all, it all adds up. It was actually funny that uh, two days before the study was published, Richard Horton, the, the editor-in-chief of The Lancet, uh, put on Twitter saying the peer-review process is very much is very strong. It's because someone had criticized how the peer review process there. This is remind you, two days before the study comes out about how the peer review process had been breaking down. Richard Horton targeted him and said, no, the peer review process is incredibly strong. We have you know, 17, we have you know, this number of peer reviewers who are doing this full time. This is their only job and, you know, and, and, then here, and then two days later, they put out an article that's, that's totally fraudulent that supposedly gets past their entire peer review process and, and, and Twitter figures it out later, I guess. Do you have any theories on what's going on here? You know, I, I don't know if I want to dabble into the conspiracy side too much, but it's very strange, is it not? I mean, it, if you just look at the, the dots and you connect them yourself, it's, it's all public. It's, it's just it's weird that a study like this could get past so many uh, you know, researchers, organizations, and result in such a huge impact, all because, uh, you know, some guy with some tech startup says, I have, I have data. And, you know, are you really going to say, like, I mean, this guy wasn't even, he, he you know, Dr. Stefan Desai, the surgery guy, he's not like a prestigious Harvard researcher. He hasn't built some huge reputation. He's, he's, you know, he published it a lot, but nothing of maybe a, a ton of consequence. So why, who was he that supposedly these authors are trusting? You know, and, and if you look at the original Lancet article, I think it even says that the authors, Dr. Mara, Harvard clinician, as well as Dr. Patel had access and can verify to the accuracy of the data. There's going to be, everyone's going to point the blame. I think the authors are now saying that they, they couldn't see the data, you know, it was all controlled by Surgisphere and Dr. Uh, you know, Sapan Desai, but, um, but I think that they kind of attested to seeing this data and that it was accurate. But it's, a, it's all very strange that it got by so many people.
0: And tell me another thing. Um, this has puzzled me that I expected this story to be all over the mainstream media that, that, you know, look, we've really made a mistake here that, that, that we bigged up this study and said it was the, it was the deal break of a hydroxychloroquine. And now it turns out the whole thing is fraudulent. And okay. The Guardian to its surprising credit covered, covered the story. But I looked in the papers and instead of this being written up, there was they went in on another study which seemed to publish suspiciously close to the um to the retraction of the Lancet study. This time, I think, from Oxford University, saying, Oh no, hydroxychloroquine has definitely failed all our patients, too, and 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 lots of them have have, have died. Uh, and somebody somebody even had a go at me for this. Somebody had a go at me on Twitter saying, Will James Dellingpole now retract his support for hydroxychloroquine like like, you know, my opinion counts anyway. But they were brandishing this latest study as, as, you know, clearly I was I was wrong. And I said, I think I would rather wait till this study has been dissected by, you know, on, on the Internet by people who understand these things, because what was happening and I think this happened with the with the Lancet study as well. The media was very eager to jump on the headline story that this this study said this, and and again with the Oxford study, this study says this, and here are some doctors confirming that it says this, but actually, in the the days since, already suspicions are being raised about the quality of this study. Have you you looked at this study?
1: Um, I have looked at it. So it doesn't, it's not, definitely not taking as strong of a position as the Lancet study where... It's not saying there's a significantly increased mortality of this. It's simply, I think, saying that there was no found no to be no benefit between these two. Again, the Oxford study it looked at, at late treatment of this disease, you know. And but I think you raise a really good point on something, which is it was it was amazing how, how shameless a lot of these um, you know professional academic uh, you know physicians who have been criticizing hydroxychloroquine for so long. They so many of them did a very detailed thread analyzing the Lancet study themselves right when it came out, and then praised its results. So this is, uh, you, know, you know, it's incredible. This is what we've been saying. C-hydroxychloroquine kills you. You were right. All to be proven wrong within two weeks in a retracted article, they're so shameless that within 24 hours of a new article coming out, they do the exact same thing. There's like, you think that, OK, maybe you should either like sit this one out or maybe give it a few days to actually look at the data yourself instead of doing a superficial analysis. You're supposedly Harvard trained and Ivy League trained. I mean, do your due diligence. Don't just, you know, summarize an article and then say, see. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I agree. I think these results need to be di- dissected, need to give it a couple weeks. Um, again, you know, if it, if it really should, if the, if the results hold up. Um, that it, it doesn't work at late stage. It's not going to be a surprise t- to me. What I think is surprising, though, is how quickly this study uh, came out right after this Lancet scandal. It's almost as if they're trying to bury that story. And it's funny, because if you look at the mainstream news CNN, and all the articles, it's not the title is not hydroxychloroquine uh, study retracted. It's no, two coronavirus studies retracted you know, they're trying to, you know, minimize, or like, uh, you know, like, you know, disconnect hydroxychloroquine from all this. It's, it's, just, it's just a bias. It's, just, it's all dripping in bias. But, you know, I guess that's just the way it is in, in the mainstream.
0: So I think we can probably agree that this is no longer a medical debate, or increasingly anyway, it has become a political one. And it's about, well, it's, a lot of it's about Donald Trump, isn't it?
1: So there's, there's definitely good physicians and, and smart independent researchers out there that I think are looking at this objectively, but largely in the public space, it's, it's purely political. You have, it's amazing that a, uh, a you know, a 65 year old medication, uh, you know, could be this political, but it, it has, and it is, um, and those lines are drawn um, and there's kind of a few people that cross both sides and look at it objectively, but you're definitely not going to see that in, in most of the mainstream channels.
0: Yes, one of the points we haven't made, actually, um, and you can, I'm sure you can fill me in very briefly. Hydroxychloroquine, you say it's, it's been used for 65 years. If you take low doses, what are, what are the side effects? What can it do to you?
1: Yeah, so again, like I said earlier, so one of the side effects can be vision loss. It's chloroquine retinopathy, where it can harm your central vision. That takes a, a fairly substantial dose over five years to have any effects. So that's one of the main ones. The other one that's really gotten a lot more attention though, though recently is the cardiac side effects. So, you know, yeah. will it give you a heart attack? And so the, the way it works is hydroxychloroquine can prolong your QT interval. And so what is that? So on EKG, and most most you have seen EKG, at least in the movies where you have kind of the, the spikes up and down. And so there's certain between those spikes, there's certain distances. It's called a QT interval. If that interval gets too long, your heart can go into arrhythmia that again, that doesn't mean you'll die, but you can go into an arrhythmia and unless that arrhythmia is corrected, either by stopping the medication or maybe, maybe getting some other uh, therapy, then you could in theory experience a, a heart attack and even cardiac death. Extremely rare. Very, very rare a handful of, of cases that have been reported over the last you know, 10, 20, 30 years and it's usually, if this, if this arrhythmia does occur, it's usually caught by physicians, because a patient will be like, oh, I, you know, I'm feeling palpitations, or something doesn't feel right, I'm tired. They go to the doctor, they do an EKG, and say, oh, you know this interval's too long, let's stop the medication and give you something else. And then they improve and they get better. Um, so that's why it was so su- su- surprising that, uh, I, that you know, the president, under heavy medical supervision, was looked at as, yeah. uh, you know, as he's going to die. The only thing that's very interesting is, so rheumatologists call uh, hydroxychloroquine, they've called it a, a daily multivitamin for lupus, okay? That's the way they look at, at this medication, because they hand it out to so many different patients. And um, they don't do EKGs on their patients before giving this medication. Most, most of them don't. Some do, I'm sure. But, but a lot of them don't, because cardiac, the cardiac risks are so small that it's not really one of their primary concerns. Um, and so to see this, uh, potential side effect blown up the way it has in the media, it's it's incredible. But to get to your original question, if you take this at low doses for a long period of time and, and you've, you know, had, uh, you've been examined by a doctor and known not to already have any risk factors for developing this cardiac side effect, you'll probably be fine. Besides maybe some GI distress initially and stuff like that.
0: And, President Trump, I know that you Americans take great care of your presidents. I mean, you know, you have a medical team whose job it is to keep the president alive. Um, So I don't know how many medics Trump would have at his beck and call. But I imagine that if he were really putting himself at risk by taking a kind of um, an unsuitable medicine, they wouldn't let him do it, would they?
1: Of course, that's that's one of the other, other funny element is people are like, oh, he's crazy. He's just uh, you know taking this medication like he he just like uh, prescribed it himself and took it. He clearly has a medical team that he he that he talked to, and they at the bare minimum said, well, you know, it could help. It almost certainly won't hurt. So yeah. you know, we would either recommend taking it or you could take it, and that was probably how that discussion looked, as opposed to them saying, no, you absolutely should not take this, but here, we'll give you the prescription if you absolutely demand it, which is the way I think the media portrayed it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, What can you tell me about um, Anthony Fauci? I mean, yes, what can you tell me about Anthony Fauci?
1: Um, So I I have no inside knowledge, but I would say that, uh, you know, he's very... uh, you know, he was very excited about remdesivir study when that first came out, which showed no mortality benefit. So that's, a big, that's essentially Big Pharma's drug, right? That's Gilead's drug. Uh, very excited about those results. He seems you know, very excited about a potential vaccine for this. Um, that seems to be one of the, the kind of big plays that's coming down. Um, you know, there's, there's so much conflict of interest, I think, at those high levels. It's you know when you have you know almost twenty percent of the the NIH task force for making recommendations on COVID nineteen who are either invested in or employed by Gilead, so essentially by big pharma who are making those decisions you know you have huge conflicts of interest when you have you know, Bill Gates you know, meeting with these people regarding a vaccine you know with his his control and power uh, you know there's a lot of influence going on behind the scenes and. And for, you know, something like hydroxychloroquine, you don't, you don't have that. There's very, there's, no, you're not going to make money off. Even the prescribed, even the, the pharmaceutical company that makes, uh, um, sorry, this is on my screen, but makes, uh, hydro, makes Plaquenil, the brand name version of hydroxychloroquine. They can't even profit much off this, uh, you know, this medication success. And so you don't have anyone championing these repurposed drugs, but you have everyone on the other side who are very high up. Uh, you know, that are very interested, I think, in big pharma success or the success of a vaccine.
0: Yes. I, do you not find that the world divides at the moment between, and I see this a lot, for example, from our government in the UK, there are lots of people invested in the notion that this coronavirus thing cannot be considered over until a vaccine appears. And this is the narrative where we're fed. And I imagine that this is the narrative that Fauci is pushing in the U.S. as well. So there's that there's that faction, which includes what the World Health Organization, uh, Big Pharma, uh, which is a which is a very powerful industry. Um, Who else haven't I said? Well, Fauci, um, his equivalents in the in the U.K. Politicians generally seem very sold on the idea. And then you've got skeptics like me and I imagine you. Who are thinking, well, well, saying, knowing even, A, it's gonna take a very long time, if ever, before we get a a a vaccine, and B, and this is where I think hydroxychloroquine is so relevant, we already have a a potential treatment, cheap, readily available. And I think us a lot of us skeptics skeptics are asking the question, well is there maybe an industry which doesn't want hydroxychloroquine to work because it's off patent and therefore no one can make money out of it and it it, it renders the need for a vaccine unnecessary?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, I think, a huge concern for these companies. Um, I think when hydroxychloroquine... the first information, clinical evidence of its success came out, I I think Gilead stock actually went down, uh, you know, some percent uh, pretty much right after that. So there there was definitely a direct, uh, you know, inverse relationship between hydroxychloroquine success, I think, and big pharma success. I think Dr. Fauci just a few days ago or last week kind of is starting to backtrack a little bit on a second wave of this virus and maybe, but for a long time, that's still the, I think the main, the main narrative, is that, you know, this doesn't go away. We're essentially going to have to do this in and out of quarantine, isolation until a vaccine is developed. Um, you know, like you said, a, a vaccine takes time. You know, I think it's it's accepted by somehow people that we can make a vaccine for everything. That's, that's not true. There's a lot of things that we, yeah. you know, a lot of viruses we cannot make a successful vaccine for. Um, even the, the flu vaccine, you know, it, it's, more effective some years than others. Let's say some years it might not be even effective at all. There's not really randomized controlled trials of a vaccine every year. They just kind of pick strains that they think are going to become uh, predominant and then put it in, in the vaccine and, and hope that it, it prevents it. But, um, you know, what I would say is if they do come out with a vaccine very soon, I'm going to be extremely concerned about both the efficacy of it as well as the safety of it. Like. You know, there aren't going to be, a, you know, there's not going to be time to do long term trials and safety monitoring or something that comes out within six months. Will this, you know, if you do catch coronavirus, will it uh, worsen it or will, you know, make you more susceptible to maybe a mutated strain of it? I, I don't know. And, and they don't know either. And so if this vaccine does come out, let's say early 2021, which I think is as soon as it possibly really could be widely, uh, you know, uh, distributed. Then, um, you know, I'd be very concerned about the safety of it
0: What? Well, why is it hard to make vaccines because I, I mean I, I think probably If you'd asked me well when I was younger, I would have imagined that, that yeah Doctors are amazing and they can do this amazing shit and they can they can they can cure stuff I mean, it's, it's why they called doctors and and there's these industries that they're here to help us and Why is it why is it hard? Harder than I thought when I was younger
1: Yeah. So your doctors do have that, but really it's all about reducing uh, chances a lot. And that's kind of what a vaccine does. You know, for for viruses that can mutate um, a lot, which, so there's certain types of viruses that can mutate very easily. Um, Not to get too much in the science of things, but if it's a single stranded RNA virus, those are susceptible to the most mutations because basically they don't, they don't audit their own replication that well. Just kind of a, everything that all the viruses that come out of, of each round of replication is almost like a first draft. So it's got a bunch of different errors, and so this uh, this DNA RNA can can mutate and can then change the way the virus infects you, which receptors it attaches to uh, in your cells, the you know which machinery it needs to replicate, and so when you have a virus that mutates like that, you have a, a, a vaccine that maybe protects against one strain of that of that virus, but not another one. And so when you then prevent one strain from taking over, all you're kind of doing is letting another strain then become the prevailing strain. And so, you know, the concern is always, you know, will that that other strain then be the more lethal one? Are you basically eliminating the the less fatal one and letting the more fatal one kind of infect everyone and and go that? Or is there some cross immunity between the two? Maybe this, uh, you know, by giving someone immunity to one strain, maybe that does uh, help prevent the other strains from from uh, infecting you or making your virus. You know, we, we don't know, but it, it kind of varies one virus to another. But uh, that's why a lot of these uh, vaccines for something like influenza, which uh, mutates in different strains every year, that's why it's, it's not always effective.
0: I think I'm, I've almost answered my question before I even answer it, because I, I referred to my younger, more innocent self. <laughs> but just just explain something to me, because i, I Okay so before all this started I was a climate skeptic so I I I was and I spent a long time looking into this and I I was familiar with the failure of models for example of of how a scientific establishment can actually be completely wrong on something and yet all the academies can can put out this this one particular view as if it were true so I'm familiar with the kind of the corruption of the the intellectual corruption of academia and, and and so on but up until this year i genuinely believed that doctors were completely ethical um and that stories about big pharma being almighty and incredibly influential and and possibly corrupt were just conspiracy theories but i mean tell me about this i mean doc okay so for example that that oxford study you've got doctors with lots of credentials after their name, putting their name to this and coming up with quotes saying this proves that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective. And yet, only the you only need a cursory glance at this study to realise it was almost designed to fail, that the doses of hydroxychloroquine were way beyond the safety zones. And that that in itself sets up a red flag for me as a kind of, you know, a, a, as a non-medic, but even I can see this is wrong. So tell me a bit about about the world of big pharma and and, and doctors.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's it has to make you suspicious, right? Because here the the people, the the physicians, the researchers on this medication who were the first to, dis, to first discover its potential use case, and then in the south of France, who's treating you know treated thousands of patients with this. Didier, didier, didier Raoul. Raoul. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, you know, the World Health Organization creates their own protocol, uh, which is completely against what anyone in the know is actually doing. Why? Like, what, what was the, what, what did you know? <laughs> which, so, which, they don't know anything. They, don't, they didn't come up with it in the first place, but they did it in a, they, like you said, it looked like it was designed to fail. And so why would they, yeah. why would they waste three months, it's been almost three months since my colleague and I put out that first paper. And we have still yet to get a well-designed, randomized controlled trial using hydroxychloroquine early treatment of COVID-19. Three months. Instead, we have a bunch of either fake studies entirely or studies looking at end-stage disease, which is not the right use case for it. So it's got to make you suspicious of the what's going on behind the scenes, what the motivation is to study this disease or this treatment in the wrong way.
0: Has it, we've already established that you're a, a level-headed young man, but has the experience of the last three or four months opened your eyes to something that you hadn't realized existed before?
1: You know, I've always been, uh, you know, there's a famous saying in, in blockchain, Bitcoin, it's called do your own research. And yeah. and I've been invested in it for a long time. And so I'd say that comes to medicine too, is you have to do your own research. If you're trusting headlines, news headlines and you know talking personalities on TV, I hope you're not making real decisions based off that information because there's a good chance that it's either misrepresented or actually just entirely wrong. Um, and I've known that for a long time. Um, this, I would say, definitely uh, is a great example of it, what's been going on in these last three months.
0: Yes. Do you, by the way, do you know why President Trump sort of adopted hydroxychloroquine? I mean, do, do you think he, he'd he read your your paper?
1: So what? From, from what I heard is after my colleague went on uh, Ingram Angle, so Laura Ingram's show, to talk about both our paper, as well as uh, the results that were coming out from Dr. Raul's lab. Um, my understanding is she took the evidence for hydroxychloroquine and actually met with Trump and discussed what what was evolving with this. And I think to him um, and his team, it's not always just him. There's a team there yes. a and, and physicians and researchers. And I think that there was maybe enough evidence where it said, hey, this could be potentially work. And that's essentially what he says. He said, you know, it it could be a game changer. And um, I think that it was a a little bit appealing because, you know, I think that he kind of always thought maybe this virus was a bit overblown, the fatality of it was. And he wanted to keep the economy strong and keep people at work and in their jobs. And so I think that there was kind of, you know, a couple of advantages to to supporting further investigation uh, into this medication.
0: Yes, but do you not think there is an industry out there which which wants the lockdown to continue?
1: Um, yes, yes, there is.
0: And what's their motivation?
1: Um, you know, uh, there's a big there's a big election coming up in November. Um, and so, uh, you know, depending on the, the state of America, how things look is, is probably going to play a role in, in how people vote and, um, you know, I'm trying not to get too political here <laughs> and try to just remain yeah. uh, a neutral cause, uh, but, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, I think that there are interests in, in, in both sides where if, you know, if the economy is still locked down, if no one has jobs, you're going to have kind of a lot of people that are dissatisfied with the state of America, right? Whereas if, if the economy is going strong, if people are back at work and things are thriving, then they'll be happy, uh, you know, they'll be happy with the way things are. And the state of economy often determines the, the elections. So there's a lot of you yes. know, political, uh, political plays, I, I think, on both sides. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, the effect, the, the state of America, whether there's a lockdown or not, I think affects the election.
0: Can I, OK, can I just outline a scenario to you, which I think will probably make sense to you? We we talked at the beginning about my colleague who asked me, why do you care about so much about hydroxychloroquine? I mean, you know, why should I care about any drug? Um, the reason seems to me very simple, that if hydroxychloroquine is an effective prophylactic and also is capable of stopping you dying if you are an at risk category of coronavirus, then suddenly coronavirus ceases to be a big deal. It's just like any other medical condition that comes and goes that is treatable. What that means furthermore is that the lockdown is entirely unnecessary and all the measures that have been taken by governments are a complete waste of time. And I think that maybe there are lots of people who can't handle the truth, in fact, don't want the truth to come out. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. that is terrifying that is really scary um james thank you so much for being on my podcast you know i i, I sort of found you randomly on twitter and i was thinking well he's he could be quite interesting or, or he could be <laughs> he, he, better than that but you've been great you've actually oh, given me you. chapter verse, and i hadn't realized because i because i'm really shit at my um I, I i don't do my homework i prefer these things to be kind of natural and stuff so <laughs> it's i, just I you really to there to the
1: out during the hydroxychloroquine paper right <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's really good. So,
0: thank you, Dr. James Tadaro. And hey, good luck with your with your crypto and and. Do you invest in crypto as well?
1: Yes, yes, I do.
0: Oh, okay. Well, briefly, where do you see where do you see Bitcoin going?
1: Um. So I think that uh, you know one of the, one of the value propositions of Bitcoin has always been a censorship resistance, and B a money supply that could not be hyperinflated. And so, you know, what we've seen is a, a lot of, of, you know, uh, printing of money, which is kind of, again, the value proposition for Bitcoin. So I think over the next two to three years there, I think Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency is going to do extremely well. Um, short term, it's always tough to say with these markets. I think it'll kind of, it's it's kind of been trending with the stock market. Uh, but. Uh, I think the next two to three years is going to be very good for this space. And, and maybe hopefully I'll be on this show in uh, in six months or a year or so talking about that.
0: That would be great. I'd love to have you back, James. It's really good. We'll, we'll, we'll do a crypto next time. Thank you very much.
1: All right. Thank you. Take care, James. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.